Welcome to Transformations, the HR management podcast by Cardata. I'm your host, Lindsay Claiborne, and together with our guests, we'll uncover and share stories from real HR professionals and dive into how they succeeded and sometimes failed in leading their people and organizations toward new ways of working. The role of HR has drastically changed. In today's world, HR is no longer just an administrative function. It is a key business driver. HR leaders are standing at the forefront of their organizations, navigating new challenges, and leading major shifts in everything from recruitment, total rewards, engagement, retention, leadership, and more. In order to stay ahead of what works for their businesses, HR leaders are tapping into new ways of thinking and leading. I can't wait to share our dynamic and in-depth conversations with you. Remember, change is inevitable, transformation is influential. Today, we are joined by Jeff Waldman. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. It is so great to have you today. Thank you for having me, Lindsay. Super excited to chat with you, Jeff. We've known each other for a number of years and work in the same ecosystem here in Toronto. And you are the founder of two amazing organizations, Scale HR and Social HR Camp, that have such a great presence within the Canadian technology and HR community. So tell us what inspired you to start those organizations. So Social HR Camp was actually started, you know, by accident. And and it it was actually in 2012. So, uh, you know, it's been a while. So I ran a conference in 2011. And it was all about basically adopting social media and that technology in the HR world. And so back then, obviously, you know, I mean, it was fairly new. And of course, back then, it was all about, you know, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and uh, from a social side. And so the HR community was sort of grappling with trying to, you know, figure that out. And I started doing a ton of work with my peers and, you know, leaders and, you know, organizations. And I thought, you know what, let's just, you know, create an event, sort of leverage my interests and skills in, in teaching and training and uh, learning and bring everyone you know, together to learn and just learn, you know, from peers and experts and uh, thought leaders. So that's how uh, Social HR Camp was born. And since then, it obviously evolved into more of a theme, you know, type uh, concept. And so we just ran one in Vancouver on basically how to approach, you know, layoffs in an ultra uh, competitive job mm-hmm. market. And so, you know, as long as the community wants it, I'll just keep getting it. And, um, you know, I've done on probably over 45 of them now in the 10 plus wow. years in, you know, various cities around down North America. And the next one's going to be in uh, Montreal, which is going to be October 26th. So, you know, that is all about hands-on learning, bringing, you know, community mm-hmm. together, bringing sponsors on board, vendors, and, you know, giving people an opportunity to speak like self, which you've, mm-hmm. you've done one before. So that's why I've done that. And then my skill HR was born out of the pandemic, you know, circumstantial. I came back to Toronto on March 15th with no job opportunities. Wow. And I thought, okay, so now what? March 15th of 2020, when basically, you know, the whole world sort of blew up. And I started mm. working with a company in that just sort of more interscale HR. So we've actually pivoted. We're doubling down on our expertise in all things skill development, which two audiences, leaders, and then HR practitioners in tech. So, and then we obviously have our events that sort of flow into that. So it's hyper-focused on that. We need more skills, you know, than ever before. Mm. So we're uh, yeah, that is such a truth. There's a phrase that's been floating around and I think it's being used more and more nowadays is this concept of building skills-based organizations and the whole concept of upskilling. I'd love to hear from your perspective. What does that mean? What do you think that 
means for organizations? And then what do you think it means for specifically HR leaders? So that, Tom, that's a load of question, but I, <laughs> which is fine. I mean, you know, but I think the business climate today is so complicated and it changes so mm-hmm. quickly. And that's been, we, we've been saying that just a year, but I think what the pandemic has obviously created some other issues. And, you know, so HR practitioners and leaders are being asked to do more with less. They're being asked to somehow magically generate new skills and, and, and uh, capabilities. And that just doesn't come out of thin air. Need a mm-hmm. it, a concerted and relentless investment and effort on you know continuing your, your skills uh, development and that can be done through sort of old school training. It can be done through you know self directed learning, peer to peer learning, case studies, you know focus group, you know networks, you know events, and so on. And so it's really important if you're asking HR leader to lead your companies to change and so on. They need to have that uh, skill set, and so they need to be at the forefront. And if they don't have it, then you, then you need to you know develop it. But obviously, with that technology changing constantly, that that needs to be at the forefront. And so, upscaling to me is just the continuous investment and effort in you know always learning new things. It sounds like based on what you were just saying, it's not just the investment in like the technology or the training courses or the facilitators they're bringing in but investment in terms of making the time for your leaders, your people in general to actually do that training, whether it's self-directed or whether it's a team or a company or in-house, out-of-house, you know, time is such a valuable resource. And it, it sounds like that's an investment that companies also need to make, not just on the financial side. 100%. And, you know, I mean, you can invest in a training program and you can put mm-hmm. your people through a program, whether it be, you know, one training course or modular, you know, it doesn't really matter what it is. Mm-hmm. But once they leave the comfort or the structure of that, so, you know, learning environment, then they go mm-hmm. back to their jobs. And what happened to those uh, skills? Do they actually adopt them? Mm-hmm. I don't know. So it's really important that, you know, companies, you know, make the investment and the effort to ensure that those new skills are actually adopted into practice. And so that's where the concept of sort of you know, peer-to-peer coaching and just mm-hmm. more uh, comes into play. And, you know, those companies who actually do that part of it, which is a, a long-term investment, will always see a much you know, better outcome, always. Absolutely. And what, because that can be a tricky thing. It can be tricky to, to advocate for taking time, encouraging your people and your leaders, well, not maybe your leaders, but your people to take out time to do that coaching or to practice a skill that they've learned. How can HR leaders be leading voices and in, in advocate and advocate for that investment of time once people are back on the job? Well, I mean, I think it, it starts earlier than that. I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, I've done a lot of work in is helping HR leaders sort of re-strategize. And so like, even if they have an HR strategy, which as you probably know, many don't, and they're sort of mm-hmm. just operating a fly and um, that's really difficult to uh, do. So they're always constantly reacting. And so the idea is that the HR leaders need to be you know, strong uh, business people. They need to understand mm-hmm. the business of the organization and we need to understand clearly what the top three to five core objectives are for the company. I mean, that's, and that's your roadmap really to build GHR strategy. And if you are going to do something on the skills side of things, then that needs to be just believe 
embedded sort of into that mm-hmm. so that it, it becomes part of your DNA. If it's sort of an afterthought, I mean, people will always push back. When people don't like change. They're like, well, I don't like this. I'm not doing it. But if you've already gotten the sign-off of your peer group in, in terms of the C-suite, then it becomes part of your, your activity and sort of day-to-day mm-hmm. work. And, you know, the other thing I'll add, too, is that as, as you probably know, you know, leading HR for, for your company, point engagement data is, is crucial. And so one of the top areas that drive engagement are, you know, ongoing learning you know, career mm-hmm. support. So if you're offering skill development training that feeds right into the business and it also helps people grow their career, those that you care about it will be all over it. And those that don't, yeah. well, you can sort of you know, bring them along slowly. Yeah. If, what's interesting too is that good management, good leadership, and good relationship with your manager are also drivers of engagement. So how do you think organizations need to rethink how they train and set expectations and and build a culture of leadership within their their organization. So I think there's a couple of things that come to mind. One is, you know, obviously skill development training. I've always embedded it right into uh, performance management. So performance management, I mean, people think that it's just about, you know, telling people what they did wrong, you know, how to release that. Well, no, it's much more than that. I mean, a performance management, like the whole goal of it is to actually improve performance, right? And then to sort of keep uh, people engaged. And so a big part of that is obviously having those conversations and the skills element side of things too. That that needs to be part of it. And so I think that first thing is that if you've got a a performance management process and it did not involve ongoing support skill development, then that needs to change. Fostering that culture of of leadership within organizations. Uh, about leadership, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a blank here. Yeah, that's, that's the first thing it needs to be embedded, but also it, it needs to start with the top in terms of mm-hmm. you know practicing what what you preach, right? So mm-hmm. if you're telling other people to do something and you don't do it, then it's not going going to happen. And as we've been talking about this, I think a couple of times it's come up that HR leaders really need to be working to get that buy-in from the C-suite, from their executive peers and from the, the top leadership. So it sounds like a key skill of HR practitioners today is the ability to influence and persuade. Absolutely. I took a class uh, back in business school. So the focus is going you know, back a while because I'm old and I didn't really get a lot out of my business program you know, back mm-hmm. in the day. But one one class that I loved was the art of um, influencing. So it's all about bargaining and mm-hmm. trying to uh, get a better deal. So, but the idea behind it was how do you uh, position something so that you're not sort of sneakily trying to get, get your way, but doing it in a smart and, you know, genuine way. And I think that's something that, you know, like HR leaders have to have. I mean, the best business people out there are really good at that sort of influence. And I think that's a skill and that's not easy, not, not easy, but mm-hmm. the easiest way to start with the actual business case. So, mm-hmm. you know, HR people, like, I mean, I'm sort of a culprit of it, you know, back in the day when I used to talk about concept or idea in big lenses. Well, you know, the poor president or the CFO or the CMO is like, what the hell are you talking about? So <laughs> then I learned quickly that I need to translate these ideas into their 
their language and being mm -hmm. able to identify what the uh, potential outcome are. And if I can do that, then theoretically I can get buying it. They can understand that. So almost like tapping into to their minds and their world. And that sounds like you said, the true business partnering side Absolutely. of an HR. So every single time that I've gone into an organization as a fashionable person or I'm in house, you know, back mm -hmm. in the day, the first person that I always met with was the CFO. And the reason why is because in an SMB, the CFO, you know, typically, you know, wield a bit more power and influence because of money. And so it was really important to me that I built that sort of, you know, instant connection with that person mm -hmm. there. So that it becomes a lot easier for me to actually work with them. Second person was the chief marketing officer. And then third was the president. And that's sort of, sort of how I did it. But it, it's really important that the HR leader needs to be, you know, business savvy, obviously, mm -hmm. so that they can actually do those things. Interesting that this the CMO was the second person on your list. Well, that's all about branding. So, so mm -hmm. you know, in marketing, I mean, one of the things about employer brand, obviously, is that mm -hmm. it does require very similar, you know, unfortunately, same skill set as any marketer would have when they're sort of branding and marketing product and services. And so, in marketing, mm -hmm. typically, we're more staff than the HR team was. Right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So then you <laughs> would go awesome. to them and you would steal some of their time. And they've got, mm -hmm. you know, the expertise, they have the, uh, the uh, tools already. Um, and so they were really, really able and willing. And once I told them that if we do this, that it'll actually help them from a mm -hmm. sort of product uh, service marketing and uh, branding point of view. And on that, that concept of employer branding, you, you talked about at the beginning, part of the, the reason you started social HR camp and that clearly was an instance of technology transforming the way that HR operate. What are some other ways that you're seeing now in, in the year 2023 that technology is transforming HR? Well, I mean, now that, you know, just so don't forget that uh, technology, you know, typically evolves and shift based on mm -hmm. where the business is going. So the business climate right. is going. So nowadays, so just, yeah. You know, in the last couple of years, we've had, you know, workforces, you know, completely shattered the old school mindset of, you know, all commuting into an office and in one place. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, most of our teams are everywhere. They're mm -hmm. working from home. They could be sitting in Vancouver. They could be sitting in Tokyo, Japan. You know, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. And so that connection be between all those team members is software. Uh, technology, cloud software, right. you know, SaaS-based. And so the organizations that were able to adapt after COVID hit through technology were the ones that were able to more seamlessly, you know, continue operation. Those that were not sort of adoptive of, you know, like the Google workspaces, Slack, you know, video technologies and, and so on and so on were scrambling. And mm -hmm. so I think that's the, the first thing is the collaborative, social collaborative technologies that have are connected to every part of work, collaboration, document management, conversation, chat, video, mm -hmm. on and on. The second one is um, AI, uh, artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. which for a lot of HR practitioners, it's like, I don't even know what that is, or I sort of know what it is, but I don't really know. And I, and I think there's, there's a couple of things there. One is AI is enabling workplace technology to be able to take over some of the administrative and sort of ongoing tax of uh, HR 
So instead of manually responding to all of your employees with the same question, you've got mm-hmm. an AI that's able to do that for you. They can also take over your know, calendar management, which is another huge burden, you know, for HR practitioners. And so, and then they can also sort of get into, you know, analytics, which is where you mm-hmm. sort of excel, you know, and this so you can probably, you know, sort of say more on that. But, you know, HR used to have sort of a reporting function through their HIS, but they were pretty, you know, weak. And so now you've got platform that can give you insight and trend and actually give you the data point that actually help you sort of move faster. The other one is, is around uh, brand experience. So when you have, you know, career sites, social media sites, and other sort of internal platforms and so on, chatbot and sort of AI powered platform can actually enable the viable experience that, that you want, you know, from an employee brand point of view. So the classic case would be job seekers, right? So they send in a resume and there's a black hole, they don't know what's going on and they have no clue what's going on. So they can actually, you know, you know, interact with, a, with an AI chatbot that can then sort of transition into a real person. So these are all things that are starting to really take hold. You know, companies have to be all over it. So interesting about the applications that you just described is it almost sounds like in a way, I might be stretching here, but it's almost that the applications of AI and, and other technologies within HR and within organizations actually can maybe humanize the experience a bit more. And and what I mean by that is you just gave the example of a, a job seeker sending a resume and it going into a black hole and they, they don't even have an opportunity to get an, get an answer or, or have any way of gathering information about where that went. Whereas now there's this intermediary that sort of starts to open that door to, or that path to getting to a real, a real person. So it's almost creating connection as opposed to actually in a bad way, like people are worried that it's going to take away the human experience. It sounds like what you're just saying is it can maybe help to connect people and, and create more human experience. It, it can definitely do that if it's done right. So don't forget that the market, you know, you know, the broader sort of like HR tech market is actually one of the, the fastest growing you know, segments right now. So it's a very mm-hmm. saturated market out there. So people are always seeing new tools and platforms. And I, I mean, I've been in HR tech for over 20 years. And this was my mm-hmm. truth, the people soft day. And I have been around it for 20 years. And I'm still learning about a new platform that I never even heard of. And so I think the, the trick, though, is for any HR leader and team is you can only do so much. So you need to focus on the business the requirements and then find you know the right solutions that actually work for you. And yes, you will come across better ones, but at least you've got something that is doing what it want, what you want it mm-hmm. to do. If you find a solution that looks cool, but doesn't actually create a better experience for your users, just don't use it or yeah. change it or, you know, deal with something different. So there's nothing more frustrating than, you know, interacting with a chatbot for 15 minutes and it goes through circles. So while you've invested in a piece of software, that may seem great, but the experience sucks because they didn't do it right. It sounds like what you're saying HR leaders should be mindful of is is what is the value you're trying to create with this tool and making sure that when you're vetting those tools, it can deliver on that value that you're looking to create. Um, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, I have a process you know, that I've taken countless uh, companies through, so HR teams through and trying to identify, you know, the right sort of HR tech stack. And it... 
it starts off with it being nothing to do with the actual software itself. It's all about the right. business and sort of what are you trying to achieve. I think that's actually really important because while company A and B may use these certain tools, those tools may but not be appropriate out for you. And you wouldn't know that unless you went through this process. Right. And we've seen, I was actually speaking with someone the other day about that if we don't use technology right, it can actually create more problems. It can create more challenges for us. The example they gave is when Amazon implemented AI within their hiring and it was the bot itself was had inherent biases and that obviously the output of that was biased hiring and it led a lack of equality and equity amongst the, the people they were hiring. And so as we're, we're shifting into a world where the focus and importance of building diverse, equitable, inclusive environments is coming to the forefront, that sounds like inherently it has to be a part of the value and experience that we're hoping our technology will, will drive. Yeah, I mean, it's a really difficult challenge because, I mean, if you believe that technology will be able to do everything for you and that person is sort of out of it, that's not going to happen. So the whole idea of technology is for it to be tools that will enable something mm. to, to happen and get mm -hmm. you other data points. So in the case of Amazon and then the hiring problem, you know, I mean, it's important that it's supposed to be a data point. And so they realized that it would not work, right? So they kind of, right. so through their sort of the hiring processes, that sort of AI tool probably was just part of that process. And they realized, you know, but it wasn't working properly. So A, they could have fixed it or they could stop. But you're right. I mean, it needs to, you know, diversity inclusion is, is difficult because there are so many things that actually make it different. And it's not just sort of any one thing or, or a couple of things. Right. It's like a million things. And so technology has to be a part of that. What are the, like you just said, there's a, a million different things that have to go into like creating authentically diverse, equitable, and inclusive organizations. What are some of those that you think are key and that HR leaders should be thinking about and should be focusing on? So this is my favorite question because so obviously I'm hard of hearing. So I was born with, with the hearing loss. And so obviously I kind of jumped into this world just because of my own personal case. But mm -hmm. I'm going to be a little bit brash about this. Talk is cheap. So I see so many organizations mm -hmm. talk about this stuff and they say, you know, we're a diverse organization and, you know, we want to be, you know, diverse and we're sponsoring this event or we're doing that. But, you know, all of that is, and I'm going to swear, it, it's complete bullshit if you don't actually practice the inclusion. Right. So what I mean by that is, you know, diversity is just the actual visual imagery and the count of the people mm -hmm. that fit into the different groups. And obviously being in Canada, we're the most uh, diverse country in the world. So, I mean, it, it's really important that our organization, you know, visually you know, reflect that of our, of our marketplace, which is fine. Okay? Mm. But then it, it's another thing to actually practice inclusion. That's where it gets hard. It's really hard because that's the way you, and it's not about, you know, creating a program or, right. you know, putting a plaque on the wall or sponsoring an organization or any of those types of things. It's about how do you change your internal practices of your organization and your business so that they overlay a diversity and inclusion lens? And, and mm -hmm. not a standalone strategy. So if you right. think that as an HR leader, you can go away and, and go, yeah, I'm going to build my DNI uh, strategy and I'm just going to roll it out. Well, what's going to happen is it's going to be full of sort of like singular programs and tactics, which mm -hmm. to me doesn't really sort of influence change. 
if you overlay it onto, you know, your choice strategies, so you start to change the hearts and minds of people. And so that they start asking questions, they start learning, and they start opening up their hearts and mind, you will start to see change happen in their day-to-day practice. So that's what it's really all about. Have you seen in your work with, with different organizations, have you seen a tactic or a, an approach that stands out to you for starting to change the hearts and, and minds of people and getting them to open up? Yeah, actually, you know, one organization that's actually based in Toronto, it's called, and I have to be careful, but it's called Bench Thai. So you probably mm-hmm. heard of them. They're a really cool uh, technology company. And the reason why that I'm talking about them is because their founder and CEO, mm-hmm. you know, openly talks about this stuff. But they also, they actually embed some of these things that, you know, that they talk about into their practices of internally. And, and they offer training courses, they offer educational mm-hmm. courses, they offer, you know, they bring in experts from different uh, areas to sort of talk about their challenges and, um, and so on. And that allows people to ask questions. So the idea behind what they're doing is, is that they are creating a culture where it's actually encouraged and acceptable for, you know, people to ask questions. That's one of the hardest things is that, and for me personally, being hard of hearing is I always encourage people to ask a question. And people, like sometimes they're a small boy, they always say, well, I don't want to embarrass you. I'm like, screw that. Ask me the question because I want you right. to learn, right? And then the other thing that they've done is they've actually created a set of questions. One is, how can I help you, right? So, you know, for example, Lindsay, you would ask me, say, Jeff, I know that you're hard of hearing. I don't know anything about it, but, you know, please tell me about it. And then how can I help you do better? So, for example, right. I can say to you, well, I let read, you know, make sure that, that you're in a quiet area. So, if you're you know, doing this call by airport, you know, for example, and it's like loud planes everywhere, you know, but I may have some problem, but, and things like that. So, that those are small little tidbits that you didn't know before, but now, right. no, and it's all done through being curious. And it sounds like an authentic curiosity, an authentic desire to learn and to understand and and a willingness to be wrong and have an opportunity to learn and do better in the future. There's a great quote by, I believe it's Maya Angelou, that it says, once you do your best until you know better, and then when you know better, do better. And it sounds like that's what you believe and what implementing this practice of just asking, ask the question, reflects. But it has to be genuine. You're absolutely right on that. So... For example, so one of the, the key things, you know, that I've done is I say to, to someone and, you know, it depends on the context, right? So if this is the first time that you're having a conversation with someone, that it's probably best to do it in private, sort of one-on-one. And you say to them, yeah. you know, I want to thank you for being open to having this conversation. I don't know anything about it. I have never been around someone you know, dealing with it or gone through this. So, you know, I want to educate myself. And I'm going to ask you a question and you tell me if it's okay. They have to be okay with it. And um, also right. say, I may ask a question that may not sound correct, but mm-hmm. just correct me and you know, teach me. And you know, once you do that, start to let that go down because they actually see it as a genuine offer. And going back to what we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation today about this environment of continuous learning, of peer-to-peer learning, it sounds like this is just an extension of that. It just happens to be from a, a lens of not necessarily a skill, but more of knowledge and awareness. Yeah. I mean, you know, people learn differently. You know, some mm. uh, people learn by just sort of hearing a podcast or you know, whatever. Mm. For me, I don't. I'm a very visual doer. 
So I need to kind of see it and feel it and I should practice it and, and do it. Yeah, so that's why too. like audio podcasts, while they might be entertaining, I get bored with them. So, <laughs> and some people like self-directed video learning. Mm-hmm. I don't. I like the live sort of a classroom kind of a structure so I can ask questions and all that kind of stuff. I love project. I learn from project, but other people don't. You know, so they're different, you know, learning style. And I think it's important to offer all about it. And now with the nature of, you know, cloud technologies and also video, I mean, you can record a session and you can upload it to your, you know, internal wiki and categorize skills and, and people can sort of watch videos and, you know, search and, and so on. So there's no you know, reason why yeah, you can't do that. And you don't need to have an expensive software, like an intranet mm-hmm. platform. You, you know, you can use a wiki like Coda, which is my favorite one. You can set it up at your internal page. There's a password that's it, you know, behind the firewall, costs you 10 bucks a month, and you can create yeah. content. So, I mean, there's lots of different ways for, for people to learn, whether it be live or like a database. Yeah, and that's one of the amazing gifts of the the age that we're in is that the democratization of access to knowledge and is so broad. And I'm curious if you see, it sounds like you see benefits. But I'm curious if you see any consequences that this creates for organizations, specifically HR professionals. Yeah. So one of the things, you know, that I get a lot is I get, if I'm coaching like an HR leader or I'm you know, meeting with people, it's, um, they say, Jeff, yeah. So I read this uh, article or case study a few weeks ago. It was about Netflix. I go, stop, stop, stop right there. <laughs> stop, please. And I go, well, first of all, you're not Netflix. And secondly, yeah. while it's important to read stuff, you really have to ensure that you sort of understand your own context. So mm-hmm. there's so much information out there, and a lot of it is great information, and a lot of it is not so great information. And I think people get sort of overloaded with almost like a FOMO concept where they're sort of fear of missing out, mm-hmm. and, you know, so they have to do more research and da da da. And I think it creates the, the idea that HR leaders get paralyzed because they're not confident in what they want to do because mm-hmm. it got all these articles and ebooks and white papers everywhere and they're trying to like make sense of it all and it just causes more more confusion so i think what i do to combat that is i have my go-to sources so you know the ones that i like and i trust and for me it's always been you know hybrid business which has always been sort of a staple for yeah. me you know i like i gallop for data and research yeah. and so on and i'm not saying go to those two i'm just saying at some point you need to kind of pick your sources and mm-hmm. you know also um really focus on your business keep yeah. going back to that your business run and your HR strategy kind of flows with it so you need to focus on mm-hmm. that and don't be right. so concerned about what's in the other you know tech companies are doing cutting out the noise it sounds like yeah. and just yeah, focus on possible. and i know that it's hard yeah <laughs> look i'm a call for it i like reading stuff so but it's like yeah Oh, that was nice, but that, this would never work in a growing SMB. Mm-hmm. You know? It's important to contextualize it and understand that we're not getting the full picture from an article. There's so many interacting factors with a performance management system and a way of administering compensation, a way of evaluating employee engagement, or a way of rolling out learning and development. And they will work, but all in different organizations with different factors around it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, every company is different. And of course, you know, I know that uh, companies like Google have their, you know, Google education sources mm-hmm. and so on and different guides and templates and all that kind of stuff. And, and it's all yeah. good stuff. The reason why that it works for them is because they built it up for them. So mm-hmm. then, you know, and what companies have to do 
And of course, I understand that, you know, SMB don't, uh, don't have IMEs of HR people and mm-hmm. both their, their stretch, you know, financially and so on. So just keep it simple. And I think that's a great note to end on. But before we wrap up, I would like to take us to the lightning round, which is three questions that are, you can respond with either a word, a sentence, or if you feel inclined, a little anecdote. I promise they're not tough. Well, at least I don't think they are. I guess I'll let you be the judge of that. (laughs) Okay, Jeff, are you ready? Yes, go. Number one, what is the number one thing that you think HR leaders need to transform their thinking on? I think it needs to be to somebody, but I think the biggest one today needs to be, you know, how they build HR strategy. It needs to be completely connected to their business. And mm-hmm. even though you've worked for 10 different organizations, each one different. So I've seen so many organizations do it, but it yeah, didn't sound right to me. I think that's mm-hmm. the biggest thing that they need to really transform their thinking. You know, forget about the noise, focus on your organization and what mm-hmm. they are trying to do. Like you said, keep it simple. Number two, what is the most impactful piece of feedback that you've ever received? So I received a piece of feedback years ago. So if you've ever taken the Myers-Briggs, well, I don't mm-hmm. know the personality indicator, there's there's E in the I and the E is, you know, extroversion and I is just the opposite. And most people have a combination of the two. Well, I'm 100% E, zero on I. It doesn't mean it can't go that way. It's just my natural tendencies. And so what that did, you know, to early in my career, I was typically the loudest person in the room. And I was on, it was enthusiastic, you know, cause I love my work. So one piece of feedback for me that was really impactful is that just keeping you, but you need to just listen more. And I think that was the biggest thing for me because by not listening and always being on the offensive in terms of activity right. created the perception that I was cocky and that was mm-hmm. not me. I don't think I'm a cocky person or arrogant and so on. That's not a trait of mine at all, but it came across that way. And so I didn't want that at all. So that was the true kicker for me. And then then once I understood how to listen and ask questions and just take a step back, take a breath, I think that actually changed a lot of things. That's amazing. And I love how that feedback was delivered, which is we're not trying to change you. We're just trying to show you how you're coming off and uh, giving you the power to decide how to use that. That's amazing. Okay. Last one. How much of your journey is made up of failures and how much of your journey is made up of successes? I would probably say more than three quarters is probably made up of a failure. I think early on in my career, I had a hard time with that. If my upbringing was always about being perfect and not failing. Mm-hmm. So I obviously learned, you know, uh, you know, the hard way and that failure is okay. But I think the biggest thing is that I can't keep failing on, on the same thing all the time that I need to learn. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think, you know, taking a risk and trying something new and, um, has sort of made me into you know, to who I am today. And I think thank you for it. Yeah, that's amazing. There's always going to be failures along the journey to success, right? I don't go out like trying something and then saying, my goal is to fail. Well, no. And, <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I'm open yeah. to it because I'm going to yeah. make errors in judgment or you know, <laughs> so forth. And But it's just part of my process is that if it does come up, yeah. I go, you know what? Let's do a debrief. Let's stop quickly. We'll figure this out. And then mm-hmm. we'll just and change course. And I've done that a million times with my own company. And, you know, I just went through a pivot and yep. taking a look, you know, a bit longer, you know, than I thought. And that was because of, of certain things along the way, but you know what, mm-hmm. you just kind of roll with it and you keep going. And that's something we can all adopt in our day to day, whether we own our own company or whether we're, we're working for another one. Again, it's all part of the learning. You have to be willing to take risks to learn and that's, that's part of it. So 
Thank you so much, Jeff. It was so wonderful to get to speak with you. Thank you for joining the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. This has been Transformations, the HR management podcast by Cardata. To find out more about Cardata's vehicle reimbursement software tailored for HR professionals, visit cardata.co and see how you could benefit from a fully managed reimbursement program.